0: Everybody. Welcome to episode number 41 of Collectible Live. Today is Sunday, August the 7th, 2022, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I want to thank everyone who tuned in last time with our guest, Brom Walker from Sotheby's. We had a great episode. Be sure to check that out. You can see that on the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel as well as the Collectible YouTube channel. But let's get to this week's episode and bring out this week's guest. He's the principal of the Mint 10 Investment Fund, Warren Lauffer, welcome to Collectible Live. Hey Jeremy, thanks for having me. You are welcome, it is is great to have you. We are gonna start off the show, we'll have an interview for the first part and then we will go over a few of the IPOs on the Collectible platform. And to everybody watching in the chat right now, welcome to the show. Be sure to post your questions, your comments in there and we will get to as many of them as we can. Warren, before I jump in with the leadoff question, I just want to say it was great to see you at the national. I saw you at Bleaker the Monday before for the layover event. Um, you got you got what, a rough oh, all rough, that time. Very nice, very nice. It's uh, what a great week we all had um, at the show, being able to just see all these all these people that you that you see on social media, you know through your various connections, and then you see them in person. It was a great time. Did you have a good week overall?
1: Had a good week exhausted still recovering uh takes a couple weeks to get over a week like that
0: it does it it really does all right before we get into the first question i will say hello to we got jeremy allen in the house from collectors leave what's up jeremy good to see you rocco Rosato. good day to you we got eddie from investicard and yes we are live eddie jake Dahl. what's going on and studio yes thank you lots of content this week on the sports cards live channel all valley what's going on justin vick is here Good to see everybody. Welcome to the show. T Dot, what's going on? Good to see you as well. Warren, let's start off with how did you first get into the hobby? Let's go right back to the beginning.
1: Yeah. um, So I think uh, I, as long as I can remember, I've been collecting something. Um, I've bounced around in my life between autographs and cards being the main thing, but uh, ticket stubs and magazines and couple pairs of shoes here and there um, but I think it, it all stems back to um, kind of going going to baseball games growing up and uh, wanting to be as close to the game as possible. Um, unfortunately was not blessed with a lot of athletic talent so my playing ambitions ended pretty early on um, but yeah when I was really little I got a few autographs. Uh, My first autograph was from Bobby Hamlin, who was the rookie of the year in, I think it was 1994. His mom was my preschool teacher. Um, So he came and gave me an autograph and it kind of took off from there. Um, Going to spring training with my dad, collecting autographs, collecting cards, and uh, eventually realizing that there's a business aspect behind it and kind of got into the buying and selling and uh, holding aspect of it. And the rest was history
0: okay well pretty cool and and here we are now you are the principal of the mint 10 investment fund which has invested in several companies within the space can you speak a bit to what your credentials are that led you to uh to to that position and and really how did you end up uh with that role
1: yeah it was i would say the the biggest credential was right place right time um i happened to be getting my mba um a couple years ago right in the middle of covid which did two important things First of all, kind of sidetracked jobs in the sports industry, uh, the leagues and the teams really weren't hiring during COVID. Um, and as we all know, that was a time of boom for the collectibles industry, especially the card industry. Um, and I got paired up with my partners at Mint 10 through one of my friends in business school. Um, and so got together with my partners, Carter and Courtney Ream and Scott Keeney, uh, aka DJ Ski. And... Uh, Kind of with my background, having been a collector, and also um, with a fresh MBA, um, was kind of what they were looking for um, in terms of somebody to run the fund. And what I was looking for was a way to kind of stay close to the sports industry. So it was just really good timing and uh, a lot of right place, right time.
0: Did your did your experience with cards and autographs help you to uh, to gain their their I guess their their confidence in you as someone who understood the hobby?
1: 100% yeah I think the probably the most important thing was the first time I got on a call with uh, DJ Ski he he had just started doing uh, his project uh, 70 cards which was the the second set of the artist renderings of, of cards with tops and I had uh, the year before worked on a, a card set an uh, autographed edition of the Project 2020 cards. With Mike Trout and so he immediately kind of had seen those going around and I think that added a lot of credibility and trust from the very beginning.
0: So can you speak a bit to what the Mint 10 fund is um, in terms of a little bit who are, the, who are the, the key investors in Mint 10 if you can disclose that and what is its mission or its mandate?
1: Yeah so our, our general partners like I said are Carter and Courtney Ream. They're venture capitalists. Um, they run a big fund in LA called M13 um, and then also with them is DJ Ski, who um, he's, he's a DJ, he's an entertainer, he's a card designer, he's a culture icon, he, he's a lot of everything, but he, he's also an investor. He was the first investor in StockX. Um, he's got a, quite a big um, card collection himself. So he, he'd been in a, for a long time. Um, Mint 10, kind of the, the idea behind Mint 10 was to do two things. The first one was to bring together the idea that you could invest both in cards as an investable vehicle, which we do, and companies that are new in this space. And what Mint 10 has that makes us really unique is a lot of specialty knowledge and understanding of this industry. Um, For a long time, I think anyone that's been in this industry for a while has seen There's a lot of people that are really passionate. But for a number of reasons over the history of the industry. It's kind of been ostracized or or ignored by traditional businesses for a lot of reasons. Um, And so we saw this opportunity come in and invest in this time of boom where there was a lot of new attention, a lot of new technologies. Um, I think one of the great things about the industry is how patient users are because they're so passionate about the product. Um, So it's a really good proving ground for new technologies and new companies. Um, to have a really patient user base. Um, and so we're a small fund. We write checks for, for venture uh, funding for new companies, anywhere from twenty five dollars to $100,000, um, usually in the pre seed and seed stages. Um, and then we really just try to provide as much expertise and advice as we can to those founders as they try to scale their business.
0: So is, is $25,000 then the sort of the minimum that you will look at investing in a new company?
1: Yeah, and and honestly, usually that's the smallest that a company would want to take. A lot of times at these stages, most traditional venture capitalist funds are writing checks in the $250,000 range. Um, We're able to actually get into a lot of deals on the smaller check size because of the expertise that we bring and kind of the extra value that we provide. Um, And so we partner a lot with some larger funds where we'll do a little bit more of the diligence Um, in terms of the research and providing our expertise to those funds who might not have a card industry special analyst on their staff. um, And and they'll usually lead those rounds, usually end up kind of uh, determining some of the terms of the deal. And we get to luckily kind of ride in on that and, and write smaller checks and continue to kind of advise those companies.
0: Right on. So what, when you're looking at a new company, if if you, you spot a company and you approach them or a company reaches out to you because they know that you guys are investing in this space, what are some of the key factors that you're looking at within these companies to decide that, you know, yeah, we can, we, we believe in this. We want to make an investment in it. Um, And, uh, and I, I want you to kind of think about your answer in terms of, if there's anybody watching right now who is looking to start a company or they've started a company, now they're going to start looking for their first round of, of raising capital. What, what do you want to see when you're looking at these new companies?
1: I think the first most important thing is just trust in, in the founding team and and the people that they've hired. The the truth of the matter is for an early stage company is things can change really quickly, their business model and their business plans, and, and even the macro environment can change a lot. So the most important thing for us when we're investing in an early stage company is this: just that we trust that the founders are, are smart and honest and they're gonna work through the problems because all of these companies are gonna have challenges and roadblocks in the way. And then I think the second thing is looking for problems that need to be solved in this industry. Um, because a lot of times we see the same kind of low-hanging fruit gone after over and over again because it's the low-hanging fruit. Um, But typically, the bigger companies in the space are able to build that themselves. And from a venture side, we really want to invest in companies that are going to be able to grow 10, 15, 20x, um, because that helps us with our probability of having success as a fund. Um, And so in order to have those kind of growth multiples, you really have to be doing something either completely new or doing something that's already been done in a completely new and innovative way.
0: Right on. So can you talk a little bit about some of the companies that you actually have invested in and even go through the complete list? Uh, pull it up. Think about it for a moment before you do. I want to go to a couple of comments. Uh, we've got John here, the basketball guard, basketball card guy says, uh, I think you should rename it the Gem Tenor Pristine Fund. Uh, John Wee, who's one of the founders of Center Stage, who I do know that uh, that the Mint 10 Fund is invested in, uh, says that we got to send you something for your walls when you're doing these interviews. Uh, Pittsburgh is in the house. That's Anthony, who is also, I believe, uh, part of one of the teams of one of the companies that you are. You guys are a part of now as well. Uh, He founded was one of the founders of the Transparent Grading Team uh, Grading Company. And now I believe is working very closely with Arena Club. We'll talk about that later, and then uh, Joe M says, "Warren, there's a ton of new tech moving into the hobby. Where do you see the biggest opportunities in the next 12 months? So, um, why don't why don't you just why don't we take that question right now, and then we'll come back to talk about the companies that are in, that are in the fund already?"
1: Awesome. Uh, yeah, it's a really good question, and I think it's changed a lot over the last 12 months because 12 to 16 months ago, there was a ton of different opportunities, and I I, I feel like I was seeing a new idea every week or so that was really cool and innovative. Um, I think the main focus that that we're looking at now is data um, and pricing data. And the reason why pricing data is so important is that it's going to be the basis for everything else that are kind of the larger goals that the people in the industry and the businesses in the industry have. Um, and, And so what I mean by that is if you want to be able to get into lending against these collectibles as assets. If you want to be able to get into insuring these collectibles as assets, um, if you want to be able to do anything like that, it's really important that you have basically high frequency live data as much as possible. Um, and and that's the beauty of cards is that with the advent of grading, we have the indexability of the cards. So a a PSA ten is a PSA ten if you have two of them, and so you know that. The price should be relatively the same across those two. And that allows for a lot of other businesses to build on. The problem right now is that we have a bunch of different marketplaces, a bunch of different grading companies, um, and a bunch of different ways that users interact with both of those. So we have people that only buy, sell, and trade at car shows. We have people that only buy, sell, and trade at auction. We have people that only buy, sell, and trade on you know fixed price listings. Um, and we have some good data sources out there. I think, you know, car is incredible. There's a couple other things out there that are really helpful, but this industry and the number of, uh, collectibles in it is so expensive that getting really good data and making sure it's accurate is probably the biggest goal, um, that I see over the next 24 months.
0: Do you have any of these data companies in your portfolio at mint 10? (laughs)
1: it's a good question and the answer is yes and no um i think the the goal with a lot of these companies that we're building out is to be able to acquire that data while providing some other service so um if i think about um, a company like john just commented john lee from center stage and they're providing this awesome service of identifying cards and pricing data to users that's going to provide a lot of data around if those users are then selling those cards or buying those cards or they're looking for those cards, what does that tell you about how frequently those cards are transacting and where the the supply and demand is for that, which gives us both actual and predictive pricing data that can help us de-risk a little bit on the lending side or de-risk a little bit on the insurance side. Um, I think we're invested in collectible as well. And I think one of the really interesting things about fractional is that it has the ability to provide really high frequency trading um, that that gives really consistent pricing, almost like the stock market, which I think could be really valuable long term. The only problem is you have to really expand the, the number of assets and make sure that users are using it frequently. And that's going to be the biggest growing pain in the fractional industry.
0: I was going to ask you, um, and I ask every guest on Collectible Live, is what are your thoughts on fractional investing and, and where it sort of fits in within the overall hobby landscape? And it seems to me like your your, your answer would be partly data, but can you just sort of uh, expand on, on that question and maybe round out what your answer would be?
1: Yeah, we had a lot of really interesting, good discussions about this at the National last week, and I think everyone is still kind of trying to figure this out exactly. I think when fractional came about a couple years ago it was everyone was really excited about what it was going to do making you know high-end more affordable um, and then we ran into these liquidity issues where people couldn't necessarily sell for the same price that the asset would be on a off of a fractional marketplace which ended up creating a lot of other factors that did weird things with the pricing on on these platforms um, so I think until we can figure out a way to get fluid liquidity on these platforms whether that's getting a better sense of what items belong on these platforms or or what items attract trading on these platforms um i think that's going to be the big goal of fractional and i I do think that fractional has a unique uh, ability to bring really good consistent data if if they can nail that
0: so i want to i want to take a second i i really appreciate those comments and i want to I want to point out to the viewers and anyone listening that, um, you know, you you're mentioned there, Warren, that sometimes you can't maybe sell, the, sell your, your unit for what, you know, pro-ratably for what, it would, what the whole card might be selling for on another marketplace. And I want to point people out to two podcasts that I think do a really good job of, of pointing out which assets on collectibles platform are currently trading at well under recent comps. The first one is Lucas, T- Tigers, and Bronze. Oh, my. That podcast, they are a partner of Collectible as well. And they, on their weekly, before the opening bell podcast, they will go through and talk about some of those assets that are trading for under comps. I think that's a great opportunity for a lot of people if you're looking to do that. The other one is the 610 Collector. Um, they're not partnered up with Collectible. They do this on their own, and they do a great job also of looking at what, because they're actively trading on, on on Collectible and I think other um, other fractional uh, ownership companies as well. So listen to these two if you guys are, if anyone out there is looking for a couple of uh, kind of tips on where there might be the ability to to get some great deals on fractional units of cards. Um, so check that out. Uh, I'm going to a couple of quick comments here before we get to the next question. Warren, first of all, hello to you. Tom Bullard says good evening, fellow cardboard hoarders. <laughs> um, and uh, Eddie Investecard says data is king. I think I think that's uh, you. You're nodding, Warren. You you agree with that comment? And then uh, T. Dot Jones has this question, Warren says, how are you dealing with market contraction correction? And I think he's talking about just the fact that over the last few months, card values are down from where they were a year ago, but we're still well up over the past few years. How does How does the current state of the market card values impact the Mint 10 fund?
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of ways, I think the most direct way is we as a fund invest directly into cards um, that, that's a big portion of our portfolio um and so what i would say is like yes we've seen a lot of prices come down significantly over the last 12 to 18 months from kind of their peaks um, but we've also seen a lot of cards and a lot of kind of segments within the industry go way up right and so a lot of things on in the vintage world are way up over the last few months. Um, we saw just this week, right? The Honus Wagner card break records um selling for 7.25 million. Most estimates are that when we see this SGC 9.5 uh 52 mantle on heritage auctions sell, that's gonna then break that record. So while we do see a contraction on a lot of kind of different areas we're seeing this now boom in vintage. And and we take that back a little bit and we saw kind of a boom in numbered parallels Um, before that. We saw kind of the wide boom um, across the industry. And some of that's really predictable if you kind of keep your head on your shoulders and look at things that are happening. So, you know, we had a lot of the grading companies were overwhelmed with volume in kind of the midst of the, the lockdown. And so it was kind of predictable that we were gonna see these pop reports skyrocket, which was going to obviously, as supply goes up, prices are going to fall. Um, but then we saw this movement into other areas. And now we, we've seen this movement into vintage and we're seeing, I think, movement into, um, you know, whether it's tickets or, or other collectibles as well. Um, so, so just kind of start by saying that. And I think directly to the question, how are we dealing with it? Trying to be ahead of, of these movements, because the the contractions are segmented but there are also segments that are expanding and if we can stay ahead of where the contractions are happening and, and focus on what's expanding then we can kind of continue to to be ahead of those issues and and so far we we've done a, a pretty good job of that
0: good okay thanks for the question uh t. jones i want to cr- i think i said earlier one of those podcasts was the 610 collector it's the 615 collector if you are looking on your various uh Podcast platforms, again, the 615 Collector. Um, Let's talk a bit about some of the companies that are in the fund now. Um, You know, I I put it when I was uh, promoting this episode, I put uh, there's about a dozen companies. and That was just a a guess. Um, Do you want to just kind of take us through some of these companies and what what they're all about and maybe a few sentences on each one? Sure.
1: Um, And I'm going to do this off the top of my head. So I apologize if I miss a couple. Um, but I think that I'll start with the two that, that we've actually now exited. So the first one was Gentiment, which was a computer vision company marketed kind of as a card fingerprint. Um, and that was founded by Kevin Lenane and acquired by Collectors Universe. Um, and now Kevin's the president of PSA. So that was the first company that, that we exited. Um, the second one is a company called Knox Technologies, um, founded by Scott Roskin and Jonathan Kramer. Um, That just got acquired by Beckett. Um, So those are kind of the two companies that have been acquired. Um, Knox was a collection management platform that has now been rolled into what Beckett is calling Beckett Collect, uh, which is part of their new branding. Um, So some cool stuff happening there. Um, Collectible, uh, as as we've mentioned, is a fractionalization platform. Um, And then also a company called Templum, which is actually providing the software behind the daily trading for fractional platforms. So we've got kind of both the front-end and the back-end investments there. Um, We invested in in Center Stage, John Wee, who's in the comments. um, They've got a great app um, that that identifies cards and pricing um, by taking a a picture of it. Um, Kind of what, what was missing when we started looking at Center Stage was this friction between buyers and sellers at shows and, and, you know, everyone stopping the conversation to go look up comps at eBay and scroll through and, and really a need for that. Um, we invested in Collects, which is a similar company to center stage also identifying cards and pricing um, both for the user. And then with the recent acquisition of a company called Card Dealer Pro, really helping card stores and large scale dealers getting their, Uh, cards identified and ready for sale and and they're going to be launching their own marketplace uh, here shortly. Um, We invested in whatnot, which I think anyone that was at the national is aware of now, but the live shopping um, company uh, as well as Loop, which is also a live shopping and and content company. Um, We invested in a company called uh, Magpie um, founded by Catherine Harrison, which is really trying to help people connect their collectibles and and alternative assets as a whole to their kind of mainstream financial portfolios. So whether you think about that as an insurance aspect or appraisal, um, or even uh, from an estate planning standpoint, making sure that if you're a collector and your kids aren't a collector uh, or aren't collectors, how do they make sure that your collection doesn't get sold to Goodwill or, um, you know, get pennies on the dollar for that? Um, Alton Insights is another company founded by Russ Lieberman, which is aiming to uh, be kind of the Bloomberg, the data pricing company um, of the industry, not only sports collectibles, but all alternative assets collectibles. So watches and collectible wines and whiskeys um, and that kind of thing. Um, We invested in Starstock, which originally was doing. Uh, a lot of, you know, raw card sales pivoted in a little bit more towards breaking as of late. Um, and I I think that's it. Um, oh, I, excuse me. Um, there's a company called Purple Mania, which is really focused on Magic the Gathering. Um, and that, that brings up a good point, which is that they're a collectible company that we think has a really good ability to pivot into uh, collection management on the sports card side. So sometimes we'll invest in a company even before they get into the sports collectibles world because we see a path into the sports collectibles world for them. Um, and I guess that, that would be, and I, I know this is probably going to be at your next question, Jeremy, but that's how we actually ended up investing in whatnot back uh, a couple of years ago. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but whatnot wasn't doing live breaking in the beginning. They were actually focused on pop Funko figures um, in in the very beginning. And, as we invested in then they were just starting to get into the live card breaking and things like that.
0: As you list off all these companies, you know, I've been doing interviews on sports cards live for over two years now. And I think I've interviewed the founder of each and every one of those companies, except for Alton insights haven't had had Russ on yet, but I, I actually met him uh, last year at the national and he, you know, kind of said he'd come on. So I got to reach out to him again. And uh, the company behind the fractional software um, as well as the magic company, but it's always fun to hear uh, you sp- you know hear you speak about all these people that I feel like, like i I know. Um, so you you have investments in center stage and collects, which are similar companies. You have investments in whatnot and loop, which are i to my from my perspective, direct competitors. How do you, as an investor sort of manage and reconcile being invested in two companies that are potentially competitors uh, with each other?
1: Yeah, it's not um. It's not always super straightforward. I I guess I would say that. Um, I think there's a couple ways that we go about that. The first one is that we're a very niche venture fund, right? We're investing only in the sports collectible space. And of those 10 or 11 companies that I just listed off, I would say three or four of them already in the two years that they've been around are, are already doing something slightly different than what they were doing when we invested in them. So we don't always know exactly at a, pre-seed or seed stage what a company is going to be doing in in six to eight months Um, so sometimes they get closer than than we expect them to or necessarily want them to and and sometimes they kind of diverge as well and sometimes we think that companies are going to be a lot closer um, competitors than than they actually are Um, but i think when it comes down to it is the things that i always tell founders if they they have concerns or even if they don't is the first thing is if we've invested in your company, we're investing in your company and we want you to be successful. Um, just because we've com- invested in another company that does something similar or, or might even, you know, you might view as a competitor, we might view as a competitor, doesn't mean that we want you to fail and them to succeed. We, we want to grow this industry and, and have the smartest minds building the best infrastructure for that. And that's why we invest in, in these companies. Um, I think the other thing is we we do advise companies but I think a lot of people think we have a lot more sway or say over certain things or the way that companies handle their their businesses or even insight into what they're doing um, so once we make an investment um, if we have any type of you know special intel into what a company is doing that's just a, a place where we have to exercise some discretion and and not share that information across teams but I would say that's that's a really rare issue that, that doesn't come up a lot, just because everyone's thinking about their businesses in a little bit of a different way, um, even if they kind of come across as competitors.
0: That that's a phenomenal answer. I just want to say I'm 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 impressed by that, and and kudos to you for uh, for having that approach and being able to be sort of transparent with your founders. I think it's important. It must make them feel good to know that yeah, even though you're even though you've invested in someone that we consider to be a competitor. You still have our best interest in hand and you're not going to share our trade secrets with our, with what might be our competitor. So uh, good on you. Good on you for that. I think it's the only way to do it. Um, there's a comment that just came up here from Joe M. He says, Warren, have you started to look into all of these new tech grading companies? Do you believe the market is ready for tech grading? So let me just preface this by saying when he says all of these new tech grading, there are several that have, that have sort of there were two that, that I I discovered at the at the Mint Collective in Las Vegas back in uh, back in March. And then, of course, I've worked uh, I've worked closely with the tag grading company on uh, did a series of five episodes on my on sports cards live with them. And then one company you did not list when you went through all the companies you're invested in (laughs) is Arena Club, which is another company that is coming into the tech grading space. Um, They have I believe they they acquired Transparent Grading Team, which is uh, where Pittsburgh is. Uh, this gentleman right here. Uh, congrats to you on that, uh, Anthony and your team. Um, so with all that said, uh, let's get back to the question that Joe put out, out there is, I mean, you know Joe says, you know, uh, do you feel that the hobby is ready for it? You've obviously you've invested in in arena club. Um, you're familiar with tag. I've told you all about tag grading. So let's get to to Joe's question specifically. Um, sorry, not Joe, not this one here, this one down here where he says, uh, do you believe the market is ready for what he's calling tech grading?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. And and Jeremy, you and I have had a lot of discussions about this. I I think the market may be ready. And I know that's a bit of a cop-out, but I think when we think about what we've seen in the last, I mean, even taking it back to kind of the beginning of grading, which maybe, you know, 30 years ago when, when grading started to really get big, um, it the first the first kind of transition went from the the old dealers and collectors having to decide if they were going to adopt grading and and a lot of them haven't i mean that it's one of the most interesting things to me walking around the national or some of the bigger shows is some of these dealers that have been dealers for 40 50 years some of the, the guys that have a lot of vintage stuff out there their cards aren't graded and it's not anything uh you know negative it's not you know some of these people that are trying to pull one over on you some of them have literally just not graded their cards because they don't believe in it um but what we saw there was this obviously big adoption of grading um and for a couple of the reasons i talked about the the indexability of pricing um the comparability Um, and so now i think we've reached this point where a majority of the industry thinks that grading is is really important Um, and we look at this kind of the historical grading and so i'll focus on maybe like what I would call the big three. And I I know there's a lot of other new and up and coming companies that are doing some really cool things, but I'll start with PSA, Beckett and SGC. And the consistency between them is okay. It's not great. And it leaves the collectors with a lot of guesswork to be able to fill in the gaps. And then even within them, something that we've all seen and it's kind of the elephant in the room is even within those companies, they're not always consistent. There was, especially during the lockdown, I mean, there were people that had whole businesses around buying up PSA 9s and cracking them and trying to send them back in and getting PSA 10s and just finding an arbitrage opportunity there. And I think thinking about all these things for growth in the industry and the things that we're talking about for investing long-term, that problem has to be solved before we can really grow into a more, institutionally financed industry. Um, And so that's why I think the market is ready. The reason why I have concerns is that we've had a lot of these new uh, tech-enabled grading companies come to the market in the last couple of years, and some of them have been better than others. Um, Some of them have been worse than others, and some of them have been just as probably worse than, than anything that we already had. And so there's a lot of trust issues with users and our consumers and people that want to get their cards graded. And so I think any new tech enabled grading has to overcome not only the market share that PSA and Beckett and SGC have already established, but they also have to overcome this new issue that's come out over the last couple of years of people that maybe don't understand all of the technical jargon and, and all of the details of that, trusting that this is different. Um, and so I think that's a, an uphill climb, but I do think it's so important and, and there's so much institutional money in the industry right now that we're going to get to that point. Um, it just is a matter of how long it's going to take because it might be one of those things where we we have a lot of friction in the beginning and then at some point it just kind of snaps into place and, and we, we realize eventually if you're going to be spending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a card you want to have a lot more information about it than just a single number that you don't really know exactly how it got there or whether or not that's consistent.
0: Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. It it all makes good sense to me. And uh, I think that, you know, having some consistency in grading will uh, will and reproducibility in grading would help the credibility of sports would help the, yeah, the credibility of sports cards becoming or becoming more of a, an at you know, a truly investable asset class. Does that, uh, does that sort of ring true with you as well?
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. I think yeah. that, that we have to get rid of some of this, uh, these trust issues. I mean, if, like I said, collectors are by default, a little bit more patient and a little bit more understanding of some of these issues than your average user, because we're so passionate about this stuff. But if we were to get into, you know, outside money really coming in people that don't have the same passion, the uh, appetite for any of this opportunity for fraud or anything like that is just going to not be there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jake, Jacob Dahl says will tech grading be more accurate than a person grading cards? And I think, I think the answer to that is they will be, tech grading will be more consistent and reproducible, meaning you're not going to be able to send the same card in over and over again and get a different grade each time like you can with manual grading companies. But uh, I don't know that there's such a thing as accurate grading. The, The hobby has already established what, what a 10 should be, a nine, an eight, a seven, and so forth. It's really, uh, is the, are the grading companies, is tech grading going to be able to you know identify and get it right in accordance with established industry standards and norms? And I think the answer to that is, is a, a very easy yes. That's the whole purpose of it. So uh, we can leave that one at that. Basketball card guy John says, I think people are ready for less subjective grading. <laughs> you think? <laughs> and that's where tech really shines. Consistency is important. I think it's extremely important. Uh, anything you want to add to that, Warren, or re- respond to that at all?
1: Nope, I think you nailed it.
0: Giovanni earlier wanted to just congratulate uh, you and the Mint 10 Fund on the exits you have had, says that is impressive to do it so quickly. So uh, that's got to be good for your track record, right? Of, for the fund.
1: Yeah, so, so far, so good. Thank you. We, we still have a long way to go, but Um, we're definitely happy with where
0: we're at right now. Yeah, right on. Joe M says, from what I've seen, TAG is going to be the leader in the space. And, you know, it's interesting because we talked about competing companies before. And in my opinion, this is correct. I think TAG is going to be the leader in the space because I I know them quite intimately and being to the facility and just seeing how far along they are. But I think it's important. I think it's not, not necessarily a bad thing for TAG or for the sports card industry to have a couple of automated grading companies in the space that might be able to, be let's call it friendly competitors because it's going to be important to to grab hold of a market share for these companies to be successful, and um, and so I think it's I think that's good news that we have a we have a couple of um, really let's just say professional uh, and and well along the, the the path companies that seem to be ready to come in, and there are a few other I would call them um, just smaller ones at this point that are going to make a play as well, and we'll see how that how that all plays out um, talking about the arena club, which you're in which you are uh, an investor in through mint 10. And I believe you're also involved personally. You have, you have a position with, with arena club, uh, the founder, Brian Lee, can you just let everybody know sort of who Brian Lee is and why is Brian Lee entering the space?
1: Yeah. Um, so Brian, Brian was at the mint collective uh, walking around and it, it was really, f- and, and we went to the Dallas show a couple of weeks ago together. Uh, It's really fun to watch him walk around. Um, Because I think at at the core, Brian's just a hardcore collector. He loves this space as much as anybody. Uh, Anytime I lost him at the Dallas show, I always ended up finding him at a dollar box, just sitting there going through single dollar cards, looking for something um, that he he collects. Um, He he has an Asian uh, athlete uh, PC. He loves Star Wars cards. He loves 1980s Dodgers cards. So he's just like going through trying to find those cards. Um, so it's always fun to watch him do that. But I think what people don't know about him in the industry that kind of everyone outside the industry knows is that he's a world-class entrepreneur. He has founded uh, he founded LegalZoom, um, he founded the Honest Company, he founded ShoeDazzle, um, and now he founded Arena Club. And Arena Club is a tech-enabled grading company um, as well as a blockchain-enabled marketplace um, that he's been working on for a few years, a couple of years. Um, And like you said, we invested at Mint 10 and, and I came on full time a few months ago uh, to lead up a business development. Um, And and Brian was really motivated by all these things we've talked about, about the inconsistency and um, about the challenges. He's a collector. He's got um, a son, Davis, who he loves to collect with. And they just were uh, frustrated by the inconsistency and, and all these problems that I think we all kind of know exist. Um, and Brian was willing to kind of spend the time and the resources to go out and, and solve that problem. Um, so he's kind of come along quietly, but uh, Arena Club is going to be launching on September 8th, um, and the, we've already you know, had a beta. We've, we've gotten some really good feedback from some of our beta users, um, and I think people are going to be really excited to, to see what Arena Club can do when it rolls out
0: right on well good luck uh good luck with the launch on september the 8th where is the launch taking place
1: the launch is going to be taking place in new york uh we are going to be doing it at yankee stadium with uh our special guest who is also uh brian's co-founder uh but i uh i'm gonna let that kind of marinate until september 8th uh when when that kind of gets publicized
0: fair enough i won't uh, i won't push any harder on that one then um okay you know When we talk about tech grading, we talk, we talk and all these companies that you are investing in through Mint Ten, the Mint 10 fund, they are all sort of companies that are shaping the future of what our hobby, what our industry is going to look like. But can you kind of step outside of your role, but using the, the 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 knowledge you have from your role, your roles, and just speak about what does the future of the hobby? look like to you and by future i mean like you can define future how you want whether that's six months from now or six years from now what do you see this hobby evolving into
1: i'll go aspirational i'll go with what i hope the hobby kind of evolves into i think we're uh gonna see a lot of regulation and a lot of cleanup in the, the industry um and, and that there's a lot of uh uh, bad behavior. I mean, just to, to be really candid going on across the industry, inconsistent behavior. Um, and there's a lot of money that that is now here that wasn't here five, 10 years ago, which means there's a lot of attention here now that wasn't here five or 10 years ago. And so I really think whether it's, um, you know, the IRS paying attention to how many cash deals are going down, uh, whether it's companies looking into, um, breaking and breaking is technically gambling. And I think that we're going to see regulation in in the breaking space very soon. Um, And I think that's good because I think if we want to grow this industry and we want to bring in more people, we have to build a safe environment for those people to come into. Uh, And one where, you know, a parent isn't worried about their kid going online and, and losing hundreds of dollars in breaks because they don't understand the probability, or they don't understand some of the things. We wouldn't have another industry where twelve-year-olds are able to just go on Instagram and, and gamble, right? That that needs to kind of be cleaned up. I think. I think breaking is really good for the industry. I think it enables people to have an opportunity, but I think it needs to be regulated. Um, and I think grading needs to be regulated. I think the fact that a you know a PSA nine is worth you know whatever percentage of a PSA ten, and then those are going to auction houses um, where some of those auction houses are aligned from a business financial side with the companies that are grading them that's a big regulatory issue that i think is now kind of gaining attention Um, and so i think my biggest hope for the industry over the next three to five years is that we start cleaning it up ourselves um, and we start building technology that allows us to do that Um, because the last thing i want to see is you know something like what happened to the autograph industry in the 90s when all of the the forgeries were coming out and the FBI got involved and it really turned people off to the, that whole like love of collecting because there was no trust there anymore and so i think it's it's on all of us to really build towards a place that people can trust the industry so that we can get ahead of that regulation and we can build a place that people can feel safe spending money and 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 making money in
0: yeah um we are we are so aligned on that last well on on most things but on that last bit for sure getting ahead of the regulation and implementing some of these things ourselves as a hobby as an industry to show the regulators that you know hey we have we have control because right now we don't have control of it at all so i think that's that's a great point warren i want to go back in time to a couple comments we had from my friend rich klein um, he says here that one of his friends told him that when they were at the Mint Collective, he thought a lot of the companies that were there uh, displaying were almost looking to be bought out by a bigger entity. He goes on to say, how does Warren feel about it if he invests in a company which he may feel is just looking to develop themselves to cash out and actually would not help his bottom line in adding that company to the portfolio? So you want to just sort of speak to to Rich's uh, friend's observation and uh, and how, you know, I asked you earlier, When you look at a company, what are some of the key factors that you look at? You mentioned the people. That was a big one, obviously, the business idea, the strategy. But do you also try and vet them for are they just looking for a cash out or do they actually want to be remain part of the business?
1: Yeah, it's a a really good question. I think uh, just I just want to clarify that last point that if a company gets acquired for more money, you know, from a valuation standpoint for a higher valuation than where we invested as a fund we do benefit from that, um, right? There, there are other ways for us to benefit from investing in a company than simply them, you know, going public or, or, you know, having dividends and things like that. No different than any company on the stock market that doesn't pay dividends, right? You're you're talking about future value being priced into that valuation. Um, so it's not always the worst thing. Um, I think both the Geniment acquisition and the Knox acquisition were pretty quick. I mean, Geniment happened within months of our first investment. Um, and Knox happened a little over a year after our investment there. Um, I don't think it's a, a negative, to be honest with you. There are, we're a very niche industry. We have antenna are a very small fund in comparison to the Andreessen Horowitzes of the world. We're not going to be able to follow on and, and kind of lead these investments all the way through an IPO. Um, and this industry is just simply still not that big. So very few companies in this industry are going to be able to scale to the point of uh, where an IPO might make sense. So um, what I don't want is a company that's looking to sell from the moment they kind of start. But looking at exit opportunities is not only smart, but but kind of the right move in this industry. And so... um, you know, there's, there's definitely targets. There, there's M&A targets, um, and, and they're pretty obvious, right? It's eBay, Collectors Universe, uh, Beckett. Um, those, are, those are the main fanatics, obviously. Those are the main companies that are doing MA deals right now. And this ecosystem kind of exists for a reason, and that is that that's more efficient than fanatics trying to develop these same technologies or these same businesses um, the reason the MA works is because these bigger companies can buy these companies um, and get their knowledge and, and their development and their team and their users and all of that thing, those things. Um, so, overall, um, as long as they're not looking for an immediate cash out, um, I, think, I think it's just a, a smart way of looking at it. We, I never thought Whatnot was going to be a $3.7 billion company. That shocked all of us. I'm excited that it is, but I would have always thought that whatnot could be acquired by a bigger marketplace. Um, and now obviously that's probably less likely.
0: Yeah. Okay. I appreciate the answer as, as does Rich Klein. He says a great answer, very honest and truthful. Justin Vick said I'm not down on regulating, but I think these things should be cleaned up, which I think a lot of people would, would have that exact same, uh, position. Um, so, okay, let us uh, let me ask you this before we get into some of the IPOs that are on the collectible platform. Uh, the National, you were at the National and similar to my question to you about, you know, how do you see the future of the hobby? What, what did you see at the National that, you know, that impressed you? What were your takeaways? And did you see any interesting companies there that you could see Mint 10 investing in?
1: Yeah, I think the, the starting point, I think, which kind of smacked me in the face the minute I walked in the convention center and I I think did the same to a lot of people was how corporate it's gotten. Um, Just, you know, how much the big companies in the space have taken over a lot of the the sponsorship and just the floor. Um, And I think that's good. Um, And I know it's gonna be tough in certain ways, but I like that they're building something better for all of us collectors. Um, And I think they're gonna do a good job of it. So that was my kind of first impression. I think, what was the second part of that question, Jeremy?
0: Oh, um, companies. Yeah. Any companies I, that, you, that, that caught your eye?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my, my biggest kind of takeaway from a company side was I was really proud and confident in the companies we've already invested in there. I think the the innovation piece um, in the last year has slowed down a little bit. There was a couple really good opportunities. Um, and I think I saw some interesting companies um, I don't don't want to throw out names, but uh, there's some interesting stuff going on. A lot of it is secondary to other companies that I think have a head start. Um, And so I I didn't see anything like brand new um, this year. But again, I mean, I think it's hard at the national as a a new small company to even get a space. So um, I'm really looking forward to going to some of the smaller regional shows because I think that's where some of these new companies can kind of really put themselves on display.
0: Right on. So you enjoyed the national, had a good time, and 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 your your was your feeling leaving the national like okay, you know the hobby's in a good spot. The 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 companies were invested is in are in a good spot. Our investors in the mint your mint ten fund investors are are in a good spot. Like are you are you bullish on the hobby overall?
1: Yeah, I think I think that was definitely my takeaway was there's. Of a lot of really good investment and a lot of really good sophistication happening in the industry, and I think that's good for all of us.
0: Right on. Well, it's kind of cool that that your fund is an investor in Collectible, which is we are on Collectible Live right now. We are streaming live to the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel and to the Collectible YouTube channel. So again, welcome to everybody who's watching, even though we are 50 minutes in. But this has been uh, this has been excellent, Warren. I knew this was going to be a great one, and uh, we are going to now spend a few minutes. We're going to look at some of the assets that are trading or that are, sorry, that are coming up for IPO on the collectible platform this week. We we have a couple to look at. And this first one, Warren, is actually pretty awesome. So I'm going to bring it up on the screen right now and share it with everybody to see. This is a 1985 Nike Air Jordan 1 Deadstock player sample with the original box. So this is, this is a pretty cool pair of sneakers. I'm not a sneaker collector, but if I was... This seems to me to be like the... And again, don't take it this for what it is because I don't know. But to me, this is like a grail pair of shoes because, because this shoe is considered to be the most influential shoe in sneaker history. So when you talk about the most iconic sports cards in the world, you think about the 52 Tops Mantle, the Tito 6 Honus Wagner. This, to me, must be in that class. And I don't know. I am not educated on this, but this is my feeling. So if a sneaker professional or expert wants to correct me please do but the one of the other cool things about these shoes is that one shoe is a size 13 the other shoe is a size 13.5 as michael jordan's feet aren't the same size so that is just additional evidence that these were original shoes player sample shoes for michael jordan several pictures of the of the shoes up on the platform i'll scroll through them you can all kind of look at them for yourself these things are very very clean i think really cool Apparently this uh, this right here speaks to player sample and TY is an abbreviation for the factory that they were made in, which I always encourage people go to the collectible platform, look at the assets on there and have a look at sort of all the information that collectible does have available. Then there's this letter here that was written from Bob Wood, who was the owner of the and I read this earlier. In summary, Bob Wood worked for Nike for 17 years uh, and and he I guess, consigned these to Sotheby's and, uh, and sent this letter here, uh, just a year ago to Brown, to Br- Brown Walker, who coincidentally was our guest on this show two weeks ago, the last time we had collectible live. So a nice letter, you know, that, that, that speaks to the provenance of these shoes. And again, this letter is available for you to read completely on the collectible website. Um, Warren, I'm going to speak to some comps on these shoes because Collectible also provides that information. While I do, I'll just sort of rest right here on this picture. But February 2022, so earlier this year, uh, a a similar pair you can see on Collectible sold for $117,000 in December 2021. Another pair similar to these sold for $139,444 on gray flannel. And October 2021, so I'm going backwards here, October 2021, this exact pair Sold for $100,800 at Sotheby's via that letter that we just saw. So, this asset is being IPO'd on Collectible at a market cap of $126,750. So, very nicely aligned. I want to, you know, I want to shout out collect, Collectible on the pricing of this. It's right in line with what we just discussed. 9.1% of the uh, equity in these sneakers is being held, by, is being held retained by the consigner. And the and it is going live on the platform this Wednesday, August the tenth at eight PM. Again, for a total value of one hundred twenty six thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. Warren, I mean, I know you, I know you can't speak to the investability of a specific asset, but what do you, what do you think of this particular offering?
1: I mean, I mean first of all, I think it's really cool. Um, I think two things that stand out to me that that make me like the, the listing are one. A majority, a large majority of, of the asset is being offered, which I think lends itself to a lot more trading down the line, which is something we talked about that that I think the fractional platforms need to really start focusing on is getting a lot of trading going on on their platforms. And then I think the other thing is, we talked about this a little bit um, with, with collectible at the national, but having the liquidity at the high end, meaning the ability that someone could theoretically come in and buy this, asset which allows us to have a little bit of a tie to to the non-fractional market um, and i think both the price um, you know it's high I, I don't exactly have the money lying around to go buy these shoes but there are people that would want to and people that could i think that's really important to keeping an honest uh, marketplace an honest comparison so i, I think that's a really cool listing
0: yeah, same here. I appreciate those insights as well. I want to go to one comment here that came in from the crowd. James uh, asks, does collectible tell you who owns these items up for fractional? Um, well, I don't think that they do. I'm not 100% certain on that. But it would almost be I would think, be- because they're retaining ownership, I don't think that they also would tell every- would tell the marketplace who all the unit holders are either. I think that might be a, a privacy issue, if-, if nothing else. So um, I am going to assume the answer is no James, but, uh, you know, someone from collectible could definitely answer that one, uh, better Warren. Do you have any insight into that? I don't know off the top of my head. I don't think so though. Um, yeah. Same with me usually, in the,
1: at least in the press releases, I think it's usually anonymous.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but it is, it is nice that you do know what it, what percentages they are whole, retaining. I always find that to be very interesting and it lends a bit of information to me on just how, how. You know, obviously there are other factors at play. Some people need the money, but in, in, you know, it does, it may be an indication of how much they believe in the asset. If they're willing, the more they want to retain, the more they believe in it. Uh, but that's just one person's opinion. So, uh, but anyway, a nice thing to think about. Okay. There are four other items that are going to be up for early access uh, this week. And so let's go through these ones. The first one is this 1968 Nolan Ryan PSA 8.5 rookie card shared with Jerry Kuzman. Uh, right now, there is 21.9% remaining, as you can see on the screen. Uh, I think you can see on the screen, I believe shares are $10. Yep, buy $10, uh, buy it at $10 per share. And the total value of this is $23,850. So you can see the consigner retained 21%. I like that. 61 investors are in at 57.1 and 21.9% remains. If anyone's interested in that asset, go ahead, go to the platform, make sure you have an account and uh, acquire some shares. The next one is this, uh, this one, which I love. I love this one because I'm a hockey guy. And uh, just look at that old issue of Sports Illustrated. This is Wayne Gretzky's first uh, cover of Sports Illustrated. This is open for early access as well. And it is going to be... Uh, Actually, it looks like it's not yet open for early access, but it is coming right away. $37,500 is the valuation on this. It is graded by, I believe, CGC, a 9.4, which again, I'm not too familiar with these, um, with with gradings of of magazines and comic books, but 9.4 sounds pretty high to me. Again, $37,500. And I believe you might be able to right now purchase shares under um, early access at $10.00 per share. Warren, do you ever, how do you feel about collecting, investing in, in magazines and and comics and those sorts of things?
1: I think the the key to it is the same as with any collectible is these things don't have cash flows, um, you know, like a, a company would. So it's important to find something that somebody else is going to want to buy down the line. That's the only way that you can make money so I think these iconic uh, items are are your best bet if, if that's part of your investment strategy. So I think it's really cool. And I, I do want to say, magazines are notoriously hard to grade.
0: So a 9.4 is uh, a really good grade. Good, you know more about that than I do. Thanks for, thanks for sharing the insight. I do appreciate it. All right, next up is this 2017 Panini Flawless Gold Rookie Patch Auto, Jason Tatum. This is in a BGS 9.5 holder. It is numbered four out of 10. It is available for early access, $10 per share at a total market cap of $56,000. The original consignor is retaining 17.9%. It's IPOing at eighty-two, uh, sorry, 82.1% is available to the collectible uh, users and customers. Looks like it hasn't been launched yet uh, at early access, but Perhaps it's available now. I'm not exactly sure. I need to find out how early access works, so I can speak to it better moving forward. But uh, this one is a, is going to be available right away, if not oh, if not very soon. Fifty six thousand for this Jason Tatum. Nice looking card overall. Numbered out of ten, and it's a it's a flawless. Which you know, National Treasures seems to be the, the number one brand when it comes to basketball and football cards. But for my taste, flawless and immaculate are nicer cards just for my taste aesthetically and this is a great looking card. What do you think about the aesthetics of this card Warren?
1: Uh, it's, I like the patch. I'm a I went to Cal so if I had to choose the Celtics player as a Lakers fan, I'm not a huge Celtics guy. It would be Jalen Brown but Jason Tatum's okay too.
0: So you don't you just don't like the you just don't like the green. I understand. I understand. All right. and the final one, in uh, early access is this one right here. This is a 2016 LeBron James game-worn and photo match jersey. It's going to be IPOing at $90,750. The consigner is retaining 0% of this one. Again, we don't know why. Uh, and the shares will be available for $10 each. So check out the collectible app for all these early access offerings. And you will, as soon as you do, it'll let you know when, or if not now, but when you are able to purchase your initial shares. So that's it for the, for the assets on the collectible platform for this week. I think we're good to wrap this up. We're right at about the hour mark here, Warren. Um, is there anything, I, I do want to put it back to you. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to, anything you want to mention? And to, the, to everybody watching the chat, final comments, questions, get them in right now because Warren did commit to an extra 15 or so minutes today. So we can go a bit over, but if not, we will wrap this up. So I'll start with you, Warren. Anything else that you wanted to, to discuss at all?
1: No, I think it was a. This is a fun conversation. We we do have to, as we agreed to mention, that we both love Timo Salani, um, which is an important point to to end on. But not. Uh, I, I think this is a really fun conversation.
0: We are we are aligned in more ways than I can keep track of, Warren. That right there, those are game, Warren Timo Solani gloves, actually from uh, from his days in Winnipeg. Uh, okay, well, Warren. Thank you so much for for joining Collectible Live this week. Uh, Shout out to Ezra for for getting you to come on as a guest. This was one that I was looking forward to and uh, just great to spend time with you. Everyone in the chat, thank you for your questions and comments, your engagement. Uh, There will not be a show next weekend for Collectible Live because I will be traveling to Europe for a, a family wedding, but we will be back the week after. And with that, Warren, you hang tight right there. Everyone else, thanks again for joining. Have a great week ahead, or a couple weeks, and uh, we'll see you next time. This episode is over.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s.